within a few months, they said they'd like me to take the next test, which was where you could start interpreting for the mayor and international guests from other governments. And that's my current position. It can be very difficult because you essentially have to make yourself invisible, but also make yourself very present so you can keep the conversation going. And that can be quite tough. It definitely gives you a, a more open mind in terms of seeing the bigger picture. And rather than focus on the word for 10 minutes as people are talking, you've missed out on all the context you need to fill in that blank. That's quite important in my training personally, because you learn to look at everything that Sensei is doing rather than a specific motion. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast. Today we're speaking with Jack James from Darlington, England, and currently living in Fukuoka, Japan. Jack is a practitioner of Jushin Ryu Iaido and holds the rank of fifth dan in the All Japan Kento Federation. He currently works professionally as an interpreter for the mayor of Fukuoka and is a regular attendee and supporter of foreign participating in Iaido events in Japan. In this fascinating interview, Jack gives us insight into the complexities and rigor of interpretation as a profession and in the Iaido context. This deep dive has given me a much greater appreciation for our tireless interpreters at seminars outside of Japan. At the end of this interview, we get a brief glimpse into the world of Jushin Ryu, but I've cut short that part of the interview so we can go into more depth in the future. For now, please enjoy this intellectually stimulating conversation with Jack James. Thank you very much for today. I've、uh, been really looking forward to getting to talk to you for the first time. So, just a quick introduction about myself. My name is Jack James. I'm originally from Darlington in the northeast of England, but I currently live in Fukuoka, Japan, where I've been here for about、uh, eight years now. My first interests, which really got me into Iaido, were,、uh, I suppose, you could blame my grandfather for. He was actually a judo teacher in England. And eventually, he went on to study Aikido as well. As I was growing up, he would show me photos of his training in Japan. So I had this very solid image from a young age of this mysterious country, which my, my grandfather would go to every year almost. And during these times, of course, the, among those pictures were him training in the Hombu Dojo in Tokyo and some of his sword work. Now, of course, those. Of the listeners that know Aikido, know that it's mainly paired work and not so much the kata, as in Iaido. But I was drawn to the sword part of it first, but wasn't really aware at a young age because we're talking, you know, from four years old. I was constantly shown a long, long time ago, so I wasn't really aware of any martial arts that focused on the sword. And obviously, as a very young child, using a sword isn't exactly the ideal sport or a hobby for your child. So my parents weren't too happy about me taking an interest in it. And it was probably when I was about fourteen, I suppose, that I just stumbled across a book on martial arts, like an encyclopedia, which featured Trevor Jones, actually, who was on your show quite recently, Trevor Jones Sensei. And this was my first, I suppose you could say, concrete encounter with the idol. When I can go, ah, okay, that's when I first got to know about it. Instantly, straight online, looking for idol dojos nearby. But unfortunately, I wasn't very tech savvy back then, so I couldn't really work it out. About two years later, when I was 16 years old, I found the book again in an old pile of books, opened it again, refreshed myself with the image of Iaido, and remembered how determined I was to study it. Once again, went online and found out that one of the oldest dojos in the UK was actually in my hometown, which is the Budokan Dojo,、uh, Musoji Kiden Asian Yu Dojo. 
luckily they had an email and a contact number on their homepage. Got in contact with them straight away and the rest you could say is history. Okay, so you started practicing when you were 16. Um, 16, yes. Did that training get interrupted by university midway through? Yeah, that's actually, it was a bit difficult at first because obviously I started at 16 and I went off to university at 18 and I just got my show done just before, well, a couple of years before and I was due to take my knee done in my first year, maybe second year of university. And because I'd moved away, there was no EIDO clubs by my university. And in the UK, the British Kendo Association has a very good support scheme where you can take your coaching certification and nearby dojo leaders will actually visit and help you support you to open a dojo just to get a foothold. Unfortunately, the university sports center weren't very keen on the idol at the time because there was a kendo club and the head of the sports center couldn't really process the difference between kendo and the idol. Essentially to him, it was both swinging sticks around. So unfortunately that fell through, but there was a, a Jikiden dojo, which wasn't in the British Kendo Association, but they were kind enough to lend me a corner in the hall so I could continue practicing. And also, luckily, there was another dojo in a nearby city in Manchester. And the dojo leader was very kind enough to actually come and collect me from the university station. And I could go and train with him. You know, he out of his way, supporting me very much through my development. And luckily, as part of my university degree, I actually got a chance to go to Japan, uh, not just to study the language. It was my excuse to go and study Iido for a year. and pretend to study, I suppose you could say. And I got to meet some very great teachers. Luckily, I managed to train with one of the most senior judges in the ZNKR at the time, Sayaki Takaharu-sensei. And it was just a phenomenal year. It really opened my eyes. I got to experience a number of different koryu and different dojos, training styles, different teachers. It was a great experience. Could you tell me more about this trip? What was this for in terms of the course? And then what required stuff that you had to do when you were in Japan? And what are the things mm -hmm. that you were able to find on your own? Okay, yeah. So originally the course itself was part of a degree in Japanese language studies. And I went to Yamaguchi University in the southwest of Japan. It's the most southern prefecture on the main island of Honshu. And it's very famous for Iaido historically as well. Many of the senior judges in the ZNKR and many students in Koryu come from there as well. But in terms of the university work, it was to study Japanese, of course. My major was actually a double major in Japanese and Mandarin Chinese. So during my time in Yamaguchi, I had the opportunity to study Chinese as well, calligraphy and a number of other subjects, mainly Japanese history and media studies, things like that, things you'd normally do at a regular university, but it was all in Japanese. As for what I did on my own, it was, as I mentioned, uh, obviously mainly Iaido, traveling around Japan in my free time to train with various teachers. And three times a week, I would train at Sayaki Sensei's Dojo in Yamaguchi as well. So I was very lucky in my location, but it's uh, maybe yourself being from Canada, you understand the distances that people have to travel to actually train you know many people think oh you're in japan there's a dojo on every corner but you know it was a, a good train ride away a couple of hours there and back so it was it was tiring but worth it normally going to dojos you need some kind of referral or a connection mm -hmm. how did you manage to go to so many different places 
Yeah, that's uh, correct. I was very lucky because during my early development, when I was still living in the UK, as with many other countries outside of Japan, we had a, a delegation from the ZNKR, the All Japan Kendo Federation. And the head of the Jikiden lineage in the UK is Oshita Masakazu Sensei from Hyogo Prefecture. And I had the opportunity to train with him a number of times, traveling from the UK to Japan. And he was very kind enough to give me an introduction to Saeki Sensei, whom he used to train with when he was a lot younger as well. So I was quite, it sounds a bit corny, but of everything from, you know, a very young age to training in Japan during my university years and then moving to Japan and training, it's all rather conveniently fell into place. You know, I don't want to use the word destiny, but everything, as I say, I've, I'm quite lucky that I haven't had to do too much to get where I am. You know, I, I hope that doesn't come across as too arrogant, but just, you know, pure luck, circumstantial. Well, just knowing the small number of people that actually do end up moving to Japan and training there, that in itself requires some effort. So I definitely don't think of it as just luck that you're able to get to your position. <laughs> Well, I hope so. I hope I've done something to earn it. <laughs> so before we continue on from that time period, is there any mm -hmm. specifically memorable experiences or events or interactions you've had with people mm -hmm. during that trip that eventually would lead you to moving back to Japan? Like this was a just a course mm -hmm. and you would eventually go back to the yeah. UK? Yeah, probably two or three major things stick out. Eidol-wise, I mean, obviously my time training with Oshita-sensei and his support was very, not just important to me because it was a chance to train, but the support he gave me outside the dojo as well, I'm eternally grateful for. But I also had the opportunity to interpret for him at a number of seminars. And this cemented my interest in interpretation, which eventually led to the job I've got now. That was one major thing. Another thing was there was a sensei in the dojo in Yamaguchi called Shigi Sensei. Now, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But after one of the training sessions, I was just about to jump on the train. He was like, no, 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 you need to come with me. And my Japanese wasn't as good back then. And he took me to his house and he kept chickens. And he gave me the largest eggs I've ever seen. Like if you, if you didn't know what bird they were from, if someone didn't say they're from chicken, you get something a lot larger, like an eagle or something. And I know it's such a small thing, but it was just the kindness he showed to a complete stranger, especially a foreigner as well, who could barely speak the language. That showed me the nicer side to things. So this was a very memorable uh, experience for me. In terms of outside of the idol, it was probably the same day that Shigi Sensei gave me those eggs actually, is a lady, complete stranger on the train, started talking to me, my broken Japanese, her broken English. And she started telling me her daughter was studying Persian in Iran. So she was very familiar with, you know, foreign languages and things and had a rather open mind towards foreign people. Because Yamaguchi is quite a, quite a rural place. So, you know, if there's a foreigner in the city, you stand out like a sore thumb. And she just gave me these huge box of sweets from Kyoto, which she bought essentially to give to her family. But she spoke to me for the hour on the train back to the university. And it's like, oh, I bet you've never tasted these before. And just the absolutely huge box of sweets. And again, it was just another act of complete kindness from a stranger that really 
not convinced. I mean, I'd always wanted to live in Japan from a young age, but it really did cement so many things for me that made me want to live here permanently. You mentioned that Saiki Sensei was part of the ZNKR committee or leadership. What was it like training with a guy like that? Looking back, I was incredibly lucky. At the time, I knew who he was and what standing he had. But it was like looking up to the clouds and seeing a level that was completely unachievable. He was in his 70s when I first met him, but he had the fastest, crispest cut I've ever seen from anyone, even to this day. The way he moved, it was like he had roller skates on his knees. He was never out of breath. And the way he taught, he had lots of different types of teaching styles for each student. So not just split into groups and he teaches all the same, but he could recognize every individual's weaknesses and strengths. And he knew how to draw out your potential. And obviously myself as a non-native Japanese speaker, he still didn't have a problem putting in a way that even I'd understand when I first got to Japan. And I was very lucky because even when I moved to Japan, after going back to England once, I give him a quick phone call just to see how he was. And he took time out of his day and gave me a one-on-one session a number of times, which with a Hanchi H Dan of his standing was normally you'd expect to have to jump through so many hoops and go through various procedures. But he was just such a kind man that he was like, oh, okay, come to the dojo on this day. And I was thinking, oh, okay, I might be able to meet him just to say hello. And he's like, no, bring your sword and your kit. And we had about six hours together, nonstop. Unfortunately, it was summer, so it was in the Japanese heat. I probably lost about two kilos in sweat that day. But uh, no, it was a great experience. And he also had Kyoshi H. Dan as his top student, Morishige Sensei, who went on to win one of the Hakone Taikais as well. And a number of seventh Dans, a number of sixth Dans, fourth Dans of all grades. So it was great to see what I should be aiming for next and then what I should be aiming for after that. And it was almost like you had this set of stairs in front of you that you could see, ah, oh, okay, okay, that's the difference between Nidan and Sandan. That's the difference between Godan and Rokudan. And as I say, unfortunately, I was lucky and unlucky at the time, lucky enough to be there and unlucky enough because I couldn't really appreciate what was in front of me at the time. So after my time in Yamaguchi, well, actually, to be honest, my year abroad was cut short by the earthquake. It was cut short, sadly, for insurance reasons on the university side. So I was thrown out, you know, I was making phone calls to Saiki Sensei and a number of other Sensei saying, I'm really sorry, but I've got to go. I promise I'll be back someday <laughs> and hop on a flight the next day. But when I got back to the UK, I went back to my original dojo in my hometown and also the dojo leader that would come and meet me from my university. He supported me for my last year. And my final memories of Yaido in the UK before I moved to Japan was a summer seminar in England where Oshita Sensei, Morita Sensei and Ishido Sensei came over and I had the opportunity to interpret for Oshita Sensei again. And then that was where I got my third dan. And a few months after, Oshita Sensei Morita Sensei came over for uh, the Jikiden seminar that was held annually in the UK at the time. And I had the opportunity to interpret there again. So these were my burring moments. It's like, you know, you're nearly graduating. You've handed your dissertation in. You've got a few more months to decide what to do. It's either stay in England or it's go to Japan. You need to make your mind up quick. And these 
last few months convinced me to just make the decision. I called my granddad, as I say, because he was my inspiration growing up in terms of martial arts and said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I should go. It's a big decision. And he essentially just said, well, no, is the money for a ticket. If you're not in Japan, then you're wasting your life. And well, you, you can't really get more, more inspiration, more reason to, to fight. And my graduation ceremony had a job within a month. That's your current job? Uh, no, my current job, my job at the time, like most people, started off teaching English because most of the translation companies in Japan, they want experience. And of course, to get experience, you need to get hired, but they won't hire you if you don't have any experience. So it was a number of years freelancing and putting myself out there quite heavily. They didn't really care about any translation work I'd done while I was in the UK or any interpretation work. So it was the first number of years was teaching like many people who came to Japan. And luckily I found myself a company which did translate, well, it was an English related company in, in the fact that they had a division which dealt with English teaching, a division which dealt with translation and then interpreting. And that got my foot in the door in the translation and interpreting business in Japan. Originally, I never actually intended to be an interpreter. It was something I wanted to do, but I was qualified in translation more. But after a few years, a position come up with the local government at the Fukuoka City Hall and took the interview. And that was originally for a translation position. But once I got the position, they said, well, actually, we'd like you to do, try some interpreting as well. So I took the interpreting test, luckily passed it. And then within a few months, they said they'd like me to take the next test, which was the level up where you could start interpreting for the mayor and international guests from other governments. I took it and luckily passed, and that's my current position. Could you quickly give a primer on the difference between interpretation and translation? Sure, of course. Now, mainly in the professional context, translation is for the written text. So you're taking one text in one language and rewording it in another. You know, there's lots of misconceptions about what should be translation. You know, many people think it's just a copy and paste in different words, but anyone that speaks two languages or has some experience with two languages will know, you know, one word in one language can mean something perfectly fine, but you can say something very similar in another language. It can mean something quite offensive. So it's not just a copy and paste. And then interpreting is a on the spot oral translation. So it's a, the spoken word. You know, you have to use the word translation when talking about interpretation. So it gets a bit confusing, but you're interpreting the spoken word from one language into another. And in my case, we have a conference interpreting where you will take notes of what's being said and then you'll interpret it after the speaker has finished. That's also known as consecutive interpreting. And then you've got simultaneous interpreting where you're speaking as the other person is speaking, maybe into a microphone or whispering into someone's ear during a meeting. Most of the people who are listening would have experience at an international seminar with a Japanese delegation. And typically they find someone that was originally from Japan, like a native speaker, to do the interpretation. What are some of these things that you had to learn on top of what a native would know to do interpretation work professionally? Yeah, there's, I was, as I say, because I never intended to be, well, I wanted to be, but didn't intend or train, I suppose you say, to be an interpreter. There was lots that was done on the job. 
So of course, the vocabulary is one thing that, you know, you come across words that you would never in a million years intend to say in an everyday conversation, see on the news, read in a book. You know, some of the, I can't give any specific details about certain jobs, obviously, but some of the topics I've had to deal with have been medical insurance, DNA coding, sewerage plants, hydrogen stations to create energy, down to everyday shopping arcades, new construction for buildings, generic stuff, just conversations, business deals, signing of MOUs, taking government delegates around museums. So interpreting information about Japanese history or English history, French history, things like this. You have to have such a wide knowledge base in a way that I have to work. Most professional translators will have a field that they specialize in, but because of the nature of my work, we can't really specialize only one subject. So there's lots of preparation. Memory training is another one, especially for consecutive interpreting. People can talk for anywhere between a couple of seconds and you don't need to take any memos or people will talk and talk and talk and if you're lucky enough the other person will say you know you might want to give the translator time to actually interpret what you're saying but sometimes it can go for 10 minutes 15 minutes and whatnot so memory training is another thing also confidence as well because you don't always have the opportunity to ask someone to repeat something if you're in a very informal situation or you have the trust of both parties, you can be lucky enough to say, oh, excuse me, can you just confirm this figure for me, especially with numbers? For example, English works in hundreds and thousands. So after you get a thousand thousand, you get a million, for example, whereas Japanese works in ten thousands. So you have a hundred ten thousands, you can have a thousand ten thousands. And when you get to 10,000, 10,000, it gets to the next number. So it's quite different. That's one of the hardest things um, I find even now is numbers. So that's the first thing you jot down. Lots of things that never occur to you as well, like how you sit and how you stand. One of the most dangerous things to do as an interpreter is you're, you're sucked into the conversation. So a joke's told and you're laughing along with it when really you shouldn't, you should be for those listeners that have seen Kabuki before, or maybe no, there's characters called Kuroko, and they're the people in black clothes with the black veil over their face, and they're moving the set behind, or um, in puppet theatre, they're the ones moving the puppets. And that's essentially what the interpreter should be, an invisible person behind the main client. So it can be very difficult, because you essentially have to make yourself invisible, but also make yourself very present, so you can keep the conversation going. And that can be quite tough. When I started out, I wasn't not told off to say, but it's like, you know, stand a few more feet back. You're not needed at the moment. So, you know, vanish for a while. When you're needed, we'll call you. Which at the start was a little bit confusing. It's like, okay, well, you know, do I need to be here? Do I need to be here? Where do I need to stand? And each client's different. So there's lots of preparation that goes into the job before you actually do the interpreting as well. Getting to know the person, getting to know their background. If you're lucky enough, if it's a fairly famous person, there'll be videos of them online where you can start to learn their speech patterns, which is very useful. But sometimes there's just no preparing. One of the most stressful jobs I ever had was I was at a event 
a business event. So lots of different companies were talking, uh, essentially pitching themselves. But before that, we were talking about the technology that was being developed in various cities in Japan. And the interpreter that was hired for the event to do simultaneous interpreting couldn't do it. She just, you know, I don't know the, the, the details or the ins and outs. All I know is that there was this event with some very important people from around Japan there. And the interpreter was holding a microphone and not speaking. And there was just a crowd of foreign guests scratching their heads. It's like, you know, is the earpiece broken? Is her microphone broken? And just simultaneous interpreting. You usually change every 10 minutes with another person or maybe 15 minutes. Maximum, if you're very good at your job, maybe you can last 20 minutes. But I had to do it for an hour and a half. So by the end of it, I was just dead, you know, soulless. There was no amount of energy drinks that could wake me up after that. It was just all adrenaline. It's like, okay, well, either talk or the event falls apart. And um, luckily managed to get through it. But if someone asked me to do it, I would have said no outright. And I think any person in their right mind would have refused the job. But because it was the event on the day, you know, it was continuing. The two main guests were talking to one another and nothing was happening. It's like now or never. And uh, yeah, that, that's probably the hardest thing I've had to do. So I suppose one of the main things I'm trying to say, if you have people thinking of being an interpreter, is prepare for something that you can't prepare for, if that's even possible. <laughs> just, just expect the unexpected. Was there anything that you were able to take from this type of experience, this learning, to go back into when you do the interpretation work at a Yado seminar? Did you feel like there are similar type of things that you were able to take from your experience? Definitely, as I said, memory was one. But because Iaido, I suppose you could say in a strange sense of the word, is my speciality because I, I train in Iaido. I know the terms. I know the history. It makes it a lot easier to interpret. So there was many things that I learned through my main job, which have subsequently made it a lot easier to interpret at seminars now. So, for example, because I've been at that worst end of the spectrum of having to talk constantly for an hour and a half, it's now a lot easier to do simultaneous interpreting for small numbers of people at seminars because I can, I tuned my brain as, as you could say, to listen in while I'm talking. That was a, a major skill which has helped, which also helps during regular EIDO classes when I'm not interpreting because you can be listening at the same time as doing and also looking at yourself in the mirror and take all the information in. So it's a great skill to be able to multitask like that. How would you build a skill like that? What what type of training did you do to do that? As well as the memory training. I'd like to hear how you built that up. Sure. One of the biggest things that many people recommend is shadowing. I think most people that have learned a second language will have done some form of shadowing, either at school or maybe something they've tried by themselves. So as you're doing the shadowing, Many people repeat the sentence after listening to it, but the key really is to repeat it as the sentence is coming, as the audio is playing, and slowly open the times between the original audio and your actual speaking. So someone might say, hello, my name is Jack, and then you'd say, hello, my name is Jack, but you're still listening to the next sentence they're saying, and that will slowly get longer and longer and longer, where you may leave a couple of words Delay, I suppose, would be the better word, to 10 seconds, 20 seconds. Or if there's multiple speakers, is good practice as well. 
So you have to remember what the first person has said, and then the second person starts speaking. So as you're listening to the second speaker, you're saying what the first speaker is saying. So that's good practice as well. An easy gateway into that is to pick two speakers, like a male and a female, or people with very different speaking patterns. So you can separate it in your head. And that was good practice as well. I mentioned the memory training where you create the story. You physically imagine yourself in the same situation that the person's talking about really helps you remember a lot more as well, creating the image. So if someone's talking about an event, for example, a city signing ceremony, for example, you imagine yourself there and you imagine the two guests on the stage signing the piece of paper, holding up a big sign with the date that it was actually concluded. These sorts of uh, imagination exercises are good too. Other things are just generic multitasking as well. It sounds really strange and, you know, I've never really told anyone about this, but, you know, just absolute crazy things. Like instead of brushing your teeth with your right hand, you'll do it with your left hand, which in itself feels unnatural. But then you'll try writing something down while listening to the news, but you have to write something down that's not on the news. And then even though you say you've wrote about what you're going to do later in the day, you have to try and remember what was said on the news really pushing yourself to try and do as many different things that are unrelated as possible. I wouldn't recommend that. That's just was me looking for things to do, to be honest, because there was a period when I realized like, I really need to step up my game to get my memory and uh, skills to where they need to be to do the job that I'm doing. Trying to put myself through as much stress as possible, because even if I couldn't do the tasks, it helped my, my body and my mind adapt to really uncomfortable situations. Because there's always going to be a point, I think, in most people's interpreting career when you either have to say something you really don't want to say, but you have to because it's not you saying it, it's someone else. You're just the channel it goes through. Or you have to hear something you really don't want to hear. It's not so much you saying it, but you, you just didn't want to know the information. You know, if you, you learn something you're like, ooh, you know, that's going to stick with me for a while. And luckily, I've not had the, the ladder. I've had it where I've had to say some things when I've not really wanted to say them. Luckily, I've not had to hear anything unfortunate, but a few of my colleagues that I know that do interpreting have been in some you know, really horrible situations, and especially court interpreters, for example. You have to be really be able to switch off, you know, completely separate your job and your home life medical interpreters as well to see some things as well that most people will be having nightmares about for a while so i think in some fields you really have to again have this on and off switch that's very important too so this is probably a much smaller scale but i, I mm -hmm. happen to know that some yado senseis don't have as much of a filter when they're criticizing in international seminars so as a junior doing the interpretation how do you manage that with great difficulty yeah i i had <laughs> sorry i just had all the all these memories that have been put in the back of my head um that have all come flushing to the surface i once had to give quite a stern talking to again it wasn't what i was saying but i was in the middle so of course normally when you do an interpreting job you speak as the person so you'll say i believe that um you need to we in this company you know you speak as the person in that situation, it was at the start of my interpreting career. I was very clear because although as an interpreter, you know what you're meant to do, 
it's also important to remember that people who aren't used to professional interpreters might take it as you your direct speech you know you're saying it and as you said as a lower grade it can make things very uncomfortable so although like i would never do an interpreting situation but i made it very clear that sensei says that you need to do xyz because and then you explain it as politely as possible but you you know you add things like sensei is quite adamant that or sensei is being very clear that he wants you to xyz luckily in those sorts of situations you're usually called to one side in a corner i've never really been in a situation where i've had to do that in front of people luckily there's also no filters in some japanese sensei as well in terms of what they should and should say from a western point of view japan is still a very conservative society as many people might know they're still a very male dominated society although it's getting a lot better there's some things that people say which make perfect sense to the average japanese person but may seem really sexist or really um not racist but bordering that very fine line it's like you shouldn't really say that where i'm from but of course they may not be aware of it a common analogy at seminars i hear in japan for all japanese seminars is you know ladies you should be able to understand this because it's like holding a kitchen knife you know the special swords for women that are lighter because obviously ladies don't have the power to do this things which over here the female sensei will also say the male sensei will also say it's not like the female practitioners over in japan are offended by it or anything because you know they will openly say it themselves but when i first come over though that culture shock in that respect is like oh you can't really say that where i'm from you shouldn't say that other things like rather than saying you know you need to firm your abdomen or put more power into your hara more tanden one teacher would say oh the, the way you're walking is making your gut wobble um making it very apparent that he thought the person was fat which in japanese may be likely teasing but obviously um saying it in front of a bunch of people and then translating into english that would have been very embarrassing for the teacher so you know i had to say um sensei thinks you need to be a little bit more stable when you walk and you have to filter out certain things and that's another thing that's really difficult about being an interpreter is there's the the morality aspect is like you're not the filter and in a professional situation you should never be the filter but for most people i think in the idol many people pay a lot of money to go to seminars in other countries or even you know go to seminars in your own country and you don't want to pay to be abused so i think there's this fine tightrope that you have to walk on what to say and when to say it you would normally hear on the side i don't know you as the interpreter would hear this but i often hear as just a member of the crowd that mm-hmm. people complain about oh well he was talking about this and i thought i heard this word here but it wasn't mentioned and mm-hmm. sometimes they will talk for a long period of time and you only translate a small amount could you maybe give an insider's perspective on why some of that happens and share a little bit about that yeah sure i mean um i i imagine it will be case by case i i don't know any specific examples off off the top of my head so if anything comes out and the audience immediately goes ah that guy was doing this please don't take it like that there could be a number of reasons i've heard interpreters miss things out simply because they don't have the language ability i mean th- that is one that many people worry about and it is a possibility no one's perfect i watched a uh, interpreter interpret for a japanese teacher i could see by the atmosphere the way the interpreter was acting 
how much was being said by the sensei, that something was being missed out. That's the extreme. But I just want to put everyone's mind at ease and say that is likely to be the 2% of cases. Many things, it's that they can be so obvious in English, but very detailed in Japanese. So, for example, the words where we would say finger, for example, you say yubi in Japanese, and there's different names for the fingers. And we have very short names for fingers. So just forefinger, middle finger, ring finger, little finger or pinky thumb. And in Japanese, they all have different names. They don't make them particularly longer, but these expressions add a few seconds onto the Japanese. There's also, when speaking to a crowd, most of the sensei will be talking very politely, and the politer Japanese is longer. So, of course, I suppose it's the equivalent of saying, do this, versus I don't suppose you'd be kind enough to make the effort to do what I'm asking of you, which is essentially just saying, do this. You know, it, it, those sorts of things are very common. And the other things as well, is Japanese can be quite repetitive. So it could say, put your right foot forward first and then your left foot. And then once again, you have to bring the right foot forward. Whereas in English, it may be very obvious that, well, if your left foot's forward, the only other foot that can go forward is your right because we don't have four legs. You know, things like this, these can be often the case where it's just, all right, I'd probably say is most of the time when there's lots of Japanese and very short English, it's just because it's so obvious in English, it doesn't need to be said. And actually, by translating it into English, it can actually make the English sound a lot more unnatural, which makes the audience get even more suspicious that maybe the interpreter's not really capable. It's like, oh, the English is getting a bit sketchy now. Does this guy know what he's talking about? myself included, because sometimes you, you get into it and then suddenly the tangent, just a complete 360, and you go back to something you were talking about 10 minutes ago, and you realize that everything you've said over the past 10 minutes is like, ah, that's what he was talking about. And sometimes you have to add that information in. And you may find that when the Japanese is very short, but the English is very long. Japanese is a language that's renowned for dropping subjects, for example. So you have to really keep on top of what's being spoken about and the verb comes at the end of the sentence. So you may have to listen to a good chunk of speech before you can actually make a comment on what the teacher is saying. So that's why most seminars, rather than simultaneous interpreting, where you're constantly talking over the sensei, it's done consecutively. So you can be 100% sure, okay, this is what the sensei is saying and this is what I need to say. Have you ever done simultaneous interpretation for a Niado seminar? I have in Japan, since you're talking and I'll be behind the group whispering what he's saying, but still breaks, unfortunately, because of the language differences. It's very difficult to get a constant flow of speech because the teacher will be stopping and starting as well. I'm sure everyone that's been to a seminar will see that the teacher will say, okay, everyone put your right foot forward. And then they'll wait for everyone to put their right foot forward before they move on to the next motion. So sometimes they can have a couple of minutes of speech and you're constantly saying it and then they'll stop while you still have to keep translating because you have to add in the extra context and the other way around as well. That the sensei is constantly talking, but he hasn't given any new information because there's lots of onomatopoeic expressions in Japanese as well. that add a bit more imagery to the motions in Japanese, but in English sound a little bit unnatural. Could you give a couple of examples of common onomatopoeias that you have to translate um, into actual words for English yeah. people? For example, one of my favorite ones is to say charin, which is the sound when the sword hits another sword. 
for example, Seite Ei Ukinagas, when the sword catches, you'd say the sand is chadin. So they might say, which would be, you have to catch the sword, but you, you don't need to say the sound in English. But it, in Japanese, it's this image of this very sudden clash of metal. And it's a very metallic sound. You wouldn't really say it about wood on wood, for example. You wouldn't use that for bokuto, for example. So that can be very difficult to come up with the word there and then. There's another one, which is a zakuri, for example, which is kind of like an image of, of ripping or tearing rather than cutting smoothly, rather than trying to come up with a word to describe that. You'd say instead of tearing through the person, for example, or instead of cutting roughly. So you have to change the expression to fit a more easy to understand. Another one that's kind of sound-based is like shoot, which is obviously the sound of a sword cutting the air. And you mainly hear it about where the sound should be coming during the cut. So if it's coming above your head, maybe some members of the audience, I know I get told off a lot for it, that if, if the sound's coming above your head, it's wasted energy. If it's coming too low, then you've put all of your power at the end of the cut instead of actually where it needs to be cutting the opponent. Things like this. These can be a little bit tricky. So overall, because I'd imagine learning interpretation requires to learn more different words and helps you when you encounter new words or new concepts, you're able to internalize it better. How has that changed your Yaido practice? Imagine initially started with only minimal Japanese language understanding, and now you have a lot more. How's mm -hmm. that changed your ability to learn? It definitely gives you a, a more open mind in terms of listening to the, or not just listening, I suppose, is seeing the bigger picture is because when you're interpreting, uh, whether for Yaido or, or non-Yaido situations, there can be times when, of course, there's words that you don't understand because it's not your um, speciality. And rather than focus on the word for 10 minutes as people are talking and you're taking notes, but you're still thinking about that word, it's like, oh, God, he said that word. I don't know what it is. But what you've really done is you've missed out on all the context you need to fill in that blank. That's quite important in my training personally, because you learn to look at everything that Sensei is doing rather than a specific motion. He might be talking about Nukitsuke, for example. And if you're only looking at the Nukitsuke motion, you're missing everything, the fingers of it, or you're missing what the muscles in his shoulders are doing, or maybe how his right foot is moving. Um, this is one thing which, although it's not directly linked to changing words, as in interpreting this way of looking for larger context, has been um, crucial, I think, for my personal development. One of the most frustrating sessions I've probably the most frustrating session I've ever had in my lifetime was over a Nukitsuke. And it wasn't about the Nukitsuke with the right hand, it's the left hand should have been doing. And Sensei was like, oh, well, you need to do this. You need to pull the Saya back more. And I was pulling it back. He's like, no, 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 more. And I was pulling it back. He's like, no, 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 more. It's like, well, it can't go any further back. He's like, well, obviously it can look. And he managed to get the Saya almost completely behind his spine. And it looked as if it was going to pop out the right side of his Hakama. And he's like, well, if I can do it, you can do it. And it's like, well, no, because look, it's not moving. And I, you know, I tried everything that he was saying. And he's like, well, did I tell you to hold it like this or hold it in a specific way? And it was like, no, which was essentially him saying, you're holding it wrong. You need to hold it like this. But if I tell you how you should hold it, you're going to forget instantly. Whereas if you work it out yourself, you're going to remember it. And 
to this day I remember exactly what he was trying to tell me and after you know I don't mind saying this but as a, as a grown man I was nearly he wasn't shouting at me or anything but I was nearly reduced to tears with my own ineptitude it was like something so simple that this this old man was doing with absolute no effort whatsoever and I was putting all of my physical force to try and move this little piece of wood into your belt and it just wasn't going and I just couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong and I went home got a bath and then went back to training after a few days and then I looked at what he was doing and it's like ah okay that's what I missed because I was too busy looking at something else and that as I say looking at the bigger picture has really helped me find the smaller details which seems to be a bit contradictory that seems like something I've heard about Japanese culture in general. You would say something like the spoken word, the language mm -hmm. you're using is one thing, but the meaning could be something else, or there could be a broader context around what they're saying. And it seems like when you're thinking about all these stereotypes of Asian martial arts, where mm -hmm. the sensei speaks in some kind of riddles, it's, <laughs> it's all for you to understand. So I think a lot of people would resonate with that experience of yours, where someone's mm -hmm. saying something, and you're just like, I'm not getting it. Yeah. I definitely think so. And um, obviously I watched all the old martial arts movies, whether it be Japanese or Chinese, uh, Thai or whatever. And of course, reading through subtitles before you can understand the language. I'm sure many people that have had an interest in the martial arts will be amazed at how flowery some of the subtitles will be. And it's like, no, you need to be looking at the dancing crane sat on the top branch of a tree in the moonlight, stuff like this. And don't get me wrong, I have heard some crazy analogies, but luckily it's not that bad. You know, just to put a few people's minds at ease if they think about coming to Japan. But there's definitely lots of expressions where to the average Japanese, but well, not even to the average Japanese person. That's worth saying as well, that don't feel that it's not just us as non-Japanese speakers that aren't getting it. The average Japanese person might not get it as well. It's a very difficult art that you're constantly improving. But there's lots of things about timing issues, for example. There's the kata in Omoriyu in Jikiden, for example, called Skikage, and that's in the Tachuchi no Kurai as well. The timing for this form comes from the name, so you have to be really quite philosophical and figure out the nuance of the moonlight, for example. There's these quite often bizarre things, um, but once they click, you're like, oh, it's so obvious. I want to get back to, you started with Jikiden, and now you're doing a different koryu. How did that happen? So to put it in a, in a nutshell, essentially, obviously I started with Jikiden, and when I moved to Fukuoka, there was only one Jikiden dojo, and it was very, it was in a different city. And if I was being quite, how can I say, being quite stubborn, I mean, I had an image in my head of what Jikiden was to me, and it was what I'd learned in the UK through that lineage. So it felt very strange for me to be doing the same art, but differently. If that makes sense, I'm not really sure. You know, it's, um, I'm afraid I haven't really done many sports throughout my uh, life other than martial arts. So it's really difficult to uh, give a good analogy for. I suppose you'd be like saying, you know, you're driving, you're still driving a car, but you've gone from a manual to an automatic or an automatic to a manual. So it's essentially the same thing. It could be exactly the same car, but they're going to handle it. So I had this image of how the car I was in should be driving. And it, I thought, well, if I go to another dojo, then that's going to be a big problem. That's the short version of it. But because I was training in the UK with Jikiden, and when I moved to Japan, it was kind of a, a fresh start. I've, don't get me wrong, I'm still in contact with my dojo friends in the UK. 
I thought it was a, if I'm going to make a decision on what I need to do for the rest of my EI life, I need to make sure it's the right decision and the decision I want to do. And when I was doing my year abroad in Japan, as I mentioned, I was exposed to a number of different koryu. And the more I researched and the more I went searching for different information and different books and things, and the more Japanese I understood, I was drawn to uh, Jushinryu. Which is essentially non existent outside of Japan. It's very rare inside Japan as well. I can't give you exact figures, but just looking at the pamphlet I got from the Kyoto Taikai a couple of years ago, there was about less than 15 people demonstrating at the Kyoto Taikai. We have organizations for Jushin Ryu dojos that you know, the dojos are a member of, and we have a, a list of all the members. And the last one, that I had sitting around earlier, I was having a look through, that was less than 100 people. So it's still a very, you could say it's one of the minor arts. And when I moved to Fukuoka, I noticed we had a dojo right by my house that did Jushinryu, and I'd always had been fascinated by it. So I was very lucky enough to get an introduction. And uh, the teacher I'm with now, or my, you know, my teacher, I wouldn't want to call him anything else is, you know, in the art is the most senior person in the art, you could say. So I'm very lucky to have ended up where I am. Could you describe some of the unique nuances about this? Yeah, sure. Just to put it kind of in a skip out most of the uh, history. Hey guys, just one more thing before you head out. Stay up to date on latest news and announcements by subscribing to our newsletter at subscribe.tokushikai.ca or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada. We're always looking for ways to improve, so please drop us a line on ideas and guests for the show. The Inside Look podcast is a production of Tokushikai Canada, a member of the Canadian Kendo Federation and affiliated with the Japanese Canadian Cultural Centre in Toronto and the original Tokushikai Yado Club in Tokyo. 